What is it? What does it feel like so that you can recognize when you're there and realize that the next step you take in that direction is going to actually create some new space for yourself? You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. You are listening, yes, to that great podcast in the sky. And if love remains, I am its messenger, Mike Levitt. <laughs> and welcome to the show. We have with us the Prince of Pianism, the maestro of music. Yes, he's back, ladies and gentlemen. Elias Axel Pedersen. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Mike. I like the intro. That was cool. <laughs> Thank you. You know, you got to change it up once in a while. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, once again, we have a very special guest, somebody that, that we've had on before, a friend of the program, always happy to have Frederick Chu, just one of the great uh, performers of our day. Really excited to have him on. Thank you so much for joining us again on And of Love Remains, Frederick. It's my great pleasure to be here. Great, great pleasure. Fantastic. Well, there's so much that, that I want to just jump into, and, and, and but I, I and if if Lucas will allow, I want to start mm-hmm. here because um, I'm fortunate enough um, to be friends with you on Facebook. So I see some of the things that you're doing specifically with some of your students. Um, and it is really remarkable. I know that this is, if, if I'm not mistaken, kind of a new endeavor for you um, mm-hmm. to take to take on students. But mm-hmm. um, I, I want to talk to you just about your teaching process and I mean, because some of your students, I mean, I just saw something where 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 you have a program where they're they're uh, playing a Chopin etude in all twelve keys, stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I, that I started. Well, to go back to just teaching in general. Yeah. For for many years, I've taught workshops, uh, private workshops for small groups, and uh, I love I love teaching, and that was the way I wanted to teach for a long time. And I would say that that was because what I was trying to do was a little bit unusual. And also, I didn't feel confident enough handling students over a long period of time, you know, like a four-year bachelor uh, diploma program, or, you know, or then add two years of master's and add the, you know, like I didn't feel like that was something that I could handle. Uh, But during the pandemic, I started full-time teaching and it was great. It was the right time and especially the right place. Uh, I started teaching at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, which is an amazing, amazing school. Uh, yeah. The people there, just in, anybody involved in Carnegie Mellon, they're so intelligent and so just uh, results-oriented. It's really quite remarkable. Um, I have a great class of students there and when I first started teaching, it was online uh, because of the pandemic. And it was kind of interesting because not having had academic teaching experience uh, over the long term, when I started teaching and it was online, I was like, great, let's use all these tools and just do it. And in some ways, I was not encumbered by experience teaching the normal way. 
like a lot of my colleagues were. And then every year as the pandemic kind of lifted and things got back in person, my learning curve was just greater and greater. So now everything is back in person. and I'm yeah. finding myself suddenly with not only everything from before back with recording <laughs> and, and performing and all the other non-musical stuff that I do. But now I've added full-time teaching as well. Right. And it's a bit of a struggle that I'm still trying to figure out, but uh, it's a good struggle to have. Mm-hmm. Talk uh, to me a little bit about, because that's what's interesting. One of the interesting, there's a lot there, but one of the interesting things is, is, you know, most of us who teach, you know, uh, you know, full-time students kind of a thing, um, you know, we definitely started in person and really struggled with the online thing. Mm-hmm, I did. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I really struggled with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and then coming back, but you kind of had the opposite thing. Talk to me about the differences, what, you know, advantages, like what, how did you find that transition to go? Well, you know, I think not having, like I said, not being encumbered by experience of something that worked that now couldn't work. I just went right into problem solving. And I think eventually, you know, everybody got on board and tools started to appear and people started sharing their experiences and how to use this or that best practices. So it was all, you know, kind of an evolution for everyone. Uh, But I would say that in, you know, at the, at the height of the pandemic, when I was teaching students, I also do some adjunct teaching at the, the heart school in Hartford, Connecticut. So there are a lot of Chinese uh, students who do their undergrad in China who come to do their master's at at the Hart School. So at one point I was teaching students starting in on the East Coast during the morning afternoon period and then kind of shifting over to West Coast based students uh, who were three hours uh, behind and then eventually shifting to Chinese students who were in China 12 hours behind. And I was teaching until like midnight, one o'clock. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool. I have to say, you know, me sitting in, in the studio and just receiving all of these uh, signals coming from all over the world. It was, it was a pretty, that is cool. Pretty incredible that is, thing. Can I, I have a quick uh, interlude here and we'll get to the disclavier uh, part later, but I'm wondering, were you teaching with a disclavier and did you have um, possibilities of students that had the same piano and so you could hear them through that or, or was it all pretty standard? Uh, they were on a, on an acoustic piano in their place and, you know, you used the either Zoom or, or a FaceTime or whatever. Um, yeah. Method. At, the very, at the very beginning when everybody was just at home, that was just Zoom. Uh, and just normal audio, normal pianos. But then uh, in the second year, uh, I was able to get a uh, disclavier into my studio in Pittsburgh, mm. and oh, nice. I had one at home. And so then when the students were on campus, but I wasn't, they could go to the studio, and we started doing the disclavier internet uh, remote control uh, kind of distance awesome. learning, which was remarkable. And I developed some techniques that uh, I've shared with a lot of disclavier users uh, where the student would be playing and I would be sitting in front of my piano watching the keys from a performer's perspective. So really being able to see like which keys they were pressing down and and, and I would take off my shoes and put the big toes on the the left and right pedals and I could feel them pedaling. 
Mm-hmm. Are you kidding? That's yeah, in, that is just insane. Yeah. So then I could really tell, like, if they were doing things right or not. And that was great. And that's how I've continued to do some remote teaching with all students uh, using Discovery. And now, now it's a choice. It's not a, it's not a yeah. forced option. The necessity. Yeah. That actually, I prefer in certain circumstances every once in a while. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, awesome. that is, that is, that is really cool. And, and, and as far as like, I guess at that point, then you're not so much concerned with um, things like, um, um, oh, I forgot the word. Um, uh, the, the time that it takes, you know, when you're on an internet call, like because you, you have the physical things that are happening on, on right. your piano. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, the latency. Yeah, the latency. The latency. Is, there you go. Thank you, man. Uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I think I was a boomer. So that the video and what happens on the keys are synchronized. So it's a, there's a little bit of latency. There's like a half second or so. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm just basically turning off the Zoom audio whenever there's piano playing going and letting the piano in front of me play. Sure. And then I'm, I'm just listening to them playing, basically, which is uh, you know, so much mm-hmm. so different than all these are there, things. I wonder if there are any glitches or delays once in a while, like there would be for an internet, you know, latency issue with uh, with the actual piano, or is it on a on a more stable network, um, so it goes quicker? Maybe it doesn't have as much information to transfer as like a Zoom call. But maybe it has more. I don't know if there are points when you're hearing the piano play in front of you where you know, it pauses for a second, then has a lot of fast notes at once. Yeah, no, it doesn't do that because, you know, the great thing about uh, the technology is that the signal is very, very low res. Like I can record something uh, like a 10 minute piece and the file is like a hundred K. Right. Because it's basically a a glorified MIDI file, right? Yeah, it's a a MIDI file and, you know, the nuance and the incredible detail of the sound is actually built into the machines it's right. built into the instruments and so yeah. and you have two so not having to be on either end you know they you don't have to send that much signal right that's, that makes a lot of sense that's great because that's great. So you don't have as great. many connection problems yeah the delay was not an issue uh, at all wow that's that i mean that makes such a big difference that's, that's really great um and so, then and then Talk to me like you, you, so you had, um, I guess as you're approaching kind of these students, what, what are you, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the technology and the technique of it, but, um, you know, what are you focusing on? You're, you're working on bachelor students, you're working on, on students that have a desire. It sounds like to, you know, make music their career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how are you approaching them from a, from a, you know, from your standpoint? with your experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have, I have super serious students who are just focused on a piano career. I have other students who are doing a kind of a dual major, very similar to what I did when I was doing my undergrad uh, with piano and computer science. And, um, and I would say in general, especially at Carnegie Mellon, this, this student population these days is extremely intelligent. They, they know a lot, they're exposed to a lot, they're very quick, um, and, uh, and at Carnegie Mellon, they have uh, you know, this kind of technology. Even the ones who are there for piano 
uh, only with a with a music major focus, uh, they they're exposed to you know this this incredible technology, and everybody is a tech major these days. Yeah, right. Like, you know, yeah, they use all this they grew up, you know, just to be alive today. It's they true. grew up in such a different <laughs> environment than we did, and um, on kind of building on what uh, you were talking about, and what Mike asked asked about uh, your experiences as a teacher being different from a lot of people that go through, you know, the system per se. Mm-hmm. And also because you have a background in computer science. Uh, I mean, this is also something that's dear to my heart. I, I followed sciences as well. I mm-hmm. wonder if that uh, informs your teaching in a different way. And if you're able to give your students at Carnegie Mellon, although it's a fantastic high level school, you know, even at a place like that, not everybody's going to become a concert pianist. So how right. do they de- develop a career and use different tools to bring into creating whatever that career is. Do you think you have, let's say, an advantage because you you have such a diverse career? I think so. I, I you know I I think that in some ways I have a little broader view just from my own personal experience uh, and just having done it myself. Uh, you know, I I see the benefit of having studied computer science and how that. <laughs> has enhanced uh, and formed my piano playing and music making mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. vice versa. I see how making music and having the, the piano regimen and, and the, all the things I've developed by playing the piano, all that applies to anything else that I do. And that's always been my belief that there's this, mm-hmm. this uh, a very porous wall between our piano life and our real, you know, like our real life. And mm-hmm. the learning can happen in both directions and should happen in both directions. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a siloed, you know, there's not part of our, our system that's reserved for piano playing and never used for anything else. It's, it's everything. And, and we wish we had more, right? Right, <laughs> okay. right. Yeah. We're overwhelmed by what we have to do, and we just wish we had more resources. So we're we're really drawing on every muscle. We're drawing on every little shred of knowledge. We're drawing on every bit of psychological understanding of of ourselves, of others, to try to make this music happen. And that's all that stuff is being created all the time, whether we're working on piano or not. Yeah, you know what I love. I love what you're saying there. I, it's one of the things I try to instill in my students is is the idea of like if you want to be a better person, if you're finding fault in your life, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can you know try to find that grounding and try to try mm-hmm. to fix some of those things. One way, not the only way, and not maybe the best way, but one way that you can do that. A great way is through practice music, you know, yeah, playing your, totally. playing your instrument and putting everything into it. And if you do that one thing, like everything else falls into place. Totally. Totally. I mean, that, that's been the basis of my, my own understanding of, of piano. And when I started teaching workshops, this under this idea of body, mind, heart, I like splitting those three things out because it's kind of almost like three, a three person committee inside of each of us trying to see the world in their various perspectives and p- playing the piano requires like a high, high level of development in each of those three areas. And once it's developed, you use it for whether it's for piano playing or for doing something else. You know, the fact that, that pianists practice going on stage 
being in front of an audience alone, playing something from memory, uh, telling a story through music. Uh, that's something that can help us if we're you know, getting up to make a speech at a, at a friend's wedding. Uh, in organizing concepts, having a structure that's laid out in front of you and knowing where you are in that structure, being able to think of two or three things uh, at the same time. We talked about this a lot uh, the last time I was on the show, this kind of multi-layered thinking. That comes in handy in everything. You know, just having multiple concepts in your head and, and keeping them, even though they don't fit together, keeping them there so that you can work with them and make them fit together. Yeah. And yeah, then this attention to the body and attention to how you feel physically and what can you do, what can't you do, and what you need to, how you need to practice things over and over and repeating things in order to instill some kind of reflex. Those are all things that, that apply to everything. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing along with those lines is, is, and we see this, especially in performers is there, there are no shortcuts, you know, mm. you cannot, you cannot take a shortcut with any of this stuff. And, and, you know, sometimes people try to bypass and, you know, maybe they use drugs or maybe they use some, you know, some, you know, non-sleep technique. I, people use all kinds of sorts yeah. of things to try to, to, to shortcut the system, but you can't, I mean, you, you can't yeah. get past the idea that you have to do, you have to do the work and you have to, uh, do it in such a way that allows your body and your your soul, as you said, your mind, body, spirit to to it's do what it needs to do at at full capacity. Yeah, it also yeah, it also has to sit with you for a while. And I, invariably, I have students that uh, that start a piece, you know, at the beginning of the semester and very ambitious, and they they want to get through it. And of course, all their other school academics, whatnot, classes get in the way, or they just don't um, have the discipline to practice on a regular basis and think they can cram it in the last couple weeks and it's it just never quite works you know i'm surprised when certain things happen and then they're very happy and proud i'm like well yeah but i was obviously having a heart attack in the meantime yeah. um just the amount of information you need to synthesize and, and process uh it's it's so much greater in some ways at the piano than almost any other endeavor and i think we've talked about this and certainly mike and i have had others on um to talk about <clears throat> some of the science behind it they've run multiple yeah. studies tests and i've been involved in some of those when i was in montreal um on how much of the brain is lit up when you're engaging in musical study musical learning repetition um and it's really as more than any other field really so yeah uh absolutely. i guess a side effect of the great of course we want to do music for its own sake in a way but the side effect is improving our mind our everything our spirit for uh, for life so yeah and i think anyway yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And I think that even within the realm of music and music making, piano and piano playing is is even on the cusp of all of those things, even more than any other instrument because of that particular combination of solo playing, the, the tradition of memorizing things, the fact that there's a 400-year catalog of incredible right. thinking that's been put together that's accessible at mm -hmm. any moment uh, you know, mm -hmm. and the multi-layered thinking in terms of uh, you know, being able to play more than one note at a time. All of that makes piano even the, even more of an enhanced version of what happens when we do music. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think, you know, agree. if everybody studied piano, that would be, <laughs> that would solve the world problems. <laughs> hey, maybe, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll go a little bit. I'll go with I that. So. Hey, speaking yeah. of multi-layered thinking and your teaching slash performing career and this thing that this, this project that you're recording career with, with, you know, things that you're doing with this clavier and such, um, you know, how, how has that, uh, philosophy that you brought? And I, and I, I use that multi-layered thinking all the time. I just think it's such, I appreciate you bringing that up in the last, our last conversation. It's really enhanced my life really. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it really has. And I think, but how, how is adding this added aspect, you know, how does that work with your philosophy? And, and, and obviously it does, it's called multi-layered thinking, yeah. but, but how, how have you been able to, to manage your life and, and, and what you need to do um, to be on the top of your game in all these aspects? I, you know, the teaching thing has been really a, an open opening of a door for me uh, that, that, kind of cliche phrase that you learn from teaching. Uh, that really has been the case for me. And uh, just knowing what I've gone through to get to where I am uh, for myself, that's helped. But to be able to describe it to someone else, you have to, you have to kind of break it down and, and, bring, and build it back up in order to have some, some kind of practical approach to things. Uh, you know, how how do I memorize? I don't think I really codified how I the process that I go through in memorizing until I had to teach someone how to do it. Uh, you know, one of the exercises that that Mike you mentioned uh, that I've been doing for myself is uh, playing Chopin etudes in different keys, and that's something that I I started doing when. I realized that, you know, as I got older, I needed to kind of keep my technique up. I wasn't able to just do mental practicing, which I had been doing for, for many, many years. Uh, and so going back to what kind of technical exercises was I going to do, I hit on the Chopin etudes, but playing the same Chopin etudes over and over and over again is kind of deadly for me, deadly for the pieces. I didn't want to do that to those pieces. And so I started giving myself challenges and uh, I hit on the transposing as one of the most interesting approaches that made the made Chopin etude playing much more interesting. At the same time, it kept a lot of the technical challenges. Certainly the mental challenges were heightened and mm -hmm. emotional challenges were also kind of a side benefit that I didn't realize until I started doing more and more. And until I started assigning this particular exercise to my students. And you know, the, the very first time I thought, okay, should I make other people do this thing that I do? <laughs> I was like, hmm, I'll give them the option. And a couple of my students took it on. A couple of my students decided not to do it. But I saw the results immediately. So now I impose it on all my students. Every lesson starts with them sitting down and playing a Chopin etude in a different key. Wow. And That's, uh, very, you know, cool. all of them Crazy. choose one, and then they go through keys week by week. Uh, you know, and there are 12 keys. There happen to be 14 weeks in a semester. So they take a couple semesters to repeat stuff that they didn't do well. But basically, they finish an etude in a semester and they get a little certificate from me and they, and they get all the benefits, body, mind, heart benefits from having done the exercise. And 
I, I'm surprised and, and very happily surprised that every single one of my students has been able to do it. Oh, that's very impressive to me. Um, and I'm only thinking, because I've done, <clears throat> I've played a number of them, uh, and I'm just thinking in the back of my mind, the technical challenge that, challenges that would arise uh, in some of them from changing keys might, might be seemingly insurmountable. I, I'm also thinking of Godovsky, who did you know his own versions, yeah. uh, and taking Opus 10 number 1 and doing it in D flat instead of C major uh, for the left hand. It actually mm-hmm. kind of fits quite well. But thinking of some of those uh, awkward um, arpeggios, you know, some might be a little bit easier. You know, the famous A major one is is crazy, but yeah. I guess in uh, in B flat major, if you go up a half step, maybe it's a little easier. Although then some of the others become extremely yeah, yeah. The Opus Ten Number One is very interesting. I, I when I started doing this exercise, I charted it out, and according to my chart of the twenty four keys and twelve major and twelve minor keys, nineteen of them appear at some point in opus 10 number one. Oh wow yeah yeah in, in various uh inversions, inversions. so Forms, yeah, yeah. the positions are not exactly the same but all 19 of the keys out of 24 appear at some point which means that if you shift it to any other key you've basically already played that key somewhere else and so when you think about it like that you realize it's not an insurmountable challenge it's just a matter of which one do i play next and in what inversion? And so then it's just a matter of practicing all your arpeggios, and and it becomes a mental exercise of keeping track of where you're going and where you've been. Mm-hmm. And on an emotional level, you get very different feelings from these different keys. Uh-huh. You know, playing it in D flat feels, ex- you know, very. I don't know. For for me, it feels warm. It feels very lyrical. Playing it in C major is very bright and, and, and energetic. Playing it in A major has a very kind of grit your teeth feeling. This is all for me, but it makes me, it sensitize, sensitizes me to differences of key colors, key characters, and so I, it makes me exercise that. I have a quick question. I forgot. Do you have perfect pitch? No, I do not. Okay, so I I don't either. Um, and uh, but I did have I've had students through the years that have you know a few here and there. And I remember last year I had one who always talked about certain colors associated with keys. So I had her write down a list of um, all the keys and the colors. And I think I'd like to ask other students at some point and maybe run like a a side little study of my own to see how they think because I know Scriabin also wrote down his ideas of the color of each key. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. synesthesia, they call that, right? Yeah. Association of one sense to the other. Yeah, no, I think that uh, for me, I was sensitized to things that I didn't realize, you know, like when I played it in C major and only in C major, I could only hear it in one way. And it wasn't until I started doing it in other keys did I say to myself, oh, I have an option to play it differently. I could play it slower. I could play it faster. I can accent this one or bring this one out. And I could diminuendo here. Because the other keys suggested a different way of organizing the, the structure. Right. Like, like that physically. Opened, that opened it up. When I went back to C major, I was, I was hearing it in, in many more different options. 
and oh, that yeah. makes it makes it much more interesting and, and much more artistic and expressive. Well, it gives you so many more tools when you do go back and play. I can I can absolutely see that is 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 it gives you the tools to you know if you hear something or or want to try to try to implement something. Elias and I have talked about this how in a performance at times you know you might um, want to you know, you might, you might feel something and, and want to experiment a little, little bit, but, but mm-hmm. if you don't have the tool, you can't do it. You can't do it. Right. <laughs> this is the exercise is also a very interesting, um, kind of a study of where your strengths and your weaknesses are. And, oh yeah. And I've seen, you know, my different students approaching the exercise in different ways. Some of them are very wedded to the score and they're constantly looking at the score and calculating intervals. Others write out a a kind of a harmonic chart. Others don't use the score at all and they don't write out a chart. They're just going by ear. Like they know how it should sound. Yeah. Others just kind of physically work it out. They know, you know, that these, positions feel like this and and they they replicate those or they alter those and it okay it kind of I, gives insight into whether they're body oriented or mind oriented or heart oriented players and that can be a, a big uh, you know self understanding for their work in general absolutely and that was actually going to be my next question is is whether you have them transpose them on the fly if you have them you know, you know, transcribe it in the different key or, or how they go, how they, you know, practically go about doing that. And you kind of answered that, that, that you allow yeah, them to have different I, I let them, I, I make them experiment a little bit. First, I, I let them or make them kind of confront their fears, like they're sitting in front of the first one and just saying to themselves, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's impossible to do. It's impossible to do. And they work it out note by note. And sometimes that first one takes weeks to work out. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm there and I encourage them and I give them little hints, but I really want them to to accomplish this themselves. And so some of them out of desperation will just have to just write the whole thing out. And once they do that, then they realize, okay, this is a lot of work. I'm going to I'm going to refine it a little bit. I see some patterns, I see some things that I can hang on to. Sure, the yeah. The second one's a little bit better. The third one's faster. The fourth one's even faster. And then by the time they get to 6 or 7, usually they're just kind of churning them out. And if there were 20 keys, they could do 20. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you find because they know how the piece is put together. Yeah. I don't know how many students you've had now doing this, but I, I guess after a few years, you'll you'll amass quite a few. Um, do you find that certain students gravitate towards certain etudes, or some, or are a- easier to transpose? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or there's for like sure. a sharp learning curve for some, but the others are are more long term difficulties. Uh, I do you think see? Uh, the ones that I kind of start off with, Opus Ten Number One, is a good one. Uh, Opus Twenty Five, number one, is a good one. Yeah. Uh, the the Aeolian Ocean, and then the Ocean of Twenty Five, yeah. number twelve. Those are the mm-hmm. three kind of go to starter ones because they're yeah. pretty straightforward. Technically, once you get the position, you just play the pattern, yeah. and it's it kind of reduces the amount of complexity. And then uh, you know, I let them choose the second one, and. You know, I, I had one student who was um, 
actually a computer science master's student, not a piano major at all. And he was taking elective piano with me and he did Opus 10 number one for his first one. Did that pretty well. I asked him, okay, you did that. Now what's the second one you want to do? And he said, Opus 10 number five, Black Key Etude. And I kind of flinched at that because I personally have not done that one myself. Not that I have to. You know, I, I, I want them to just pick the one that they're comfortable with, that they know well. And he said, I'd like to do Opus 10 number five. And I said, okay. He came in and played that the next week. And it was in great, great shape. He, he had no problems with it. I said, okay, what's, what key do you want to go? Do you want to go? You know, there are different approaches. You can go in circle of fifths. Yeah, up, chromatic. You can circle of fifths down. You can go chromatically up, chromatically down. So there are different options, and there, there are pros and cons to each of them. And he said, I'd like to do G major next time. I said, okay, it'll be very interesting. I, I can't wait to see what happens. We came back next week, um, and we were going to start with that. So I said, so how, how did the etude go? And he said, I don't know yet. Mm. I haven't had a chance to work it out on the piano, but... I've worked it out in my head on my way to class. I've worked on it every day, and I think I got it. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> he sat down and <laughs> in tempo, almost didn't miss a note. I, I was so astonished. I took a little video of it. I posted it on my Facebook page, a little clip of him just doing it. Wow. Without having, without having physically practiced it. So, you know, obviously for that student, the mind is the driving factor whatever he can think he can pretty much do uh, he's going to approach it in that way kind of using imagery using his understanding and his memory of the original to to work it out in his head other students are not ever going to be able to do that but they will be able to hear it and you know like hear the color of the next chord and they'll know instinctively what pattern to play other students have a strong physical uh, understanding, a, a kind of topographical knowledge of the keyboard, and they'll work it out in a different way. So each of these students comes to me with their way eventually, they're, they're using their strengths and shoring up their weaknesses uh, to do this exercise. And I've been extremely happy having decided now everybody's going to do it. It's just a little warm up. Start your lesson with that, and then we move on to the stuff <laughs> that mm. we're going to work on. <laughs> and it's great. Everybody, everybody, for their first one, they say, oh, "I can't do it." I have to be excused. I say, "No way." Everybody has done it, and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You're just going to do it, and they protest, and they come and they do it. It's yeah. really wow. Now, how <laughs> how is having that approach or, or doing that that exercise on a consistent basis? Um, you know, helped you, but I'm also curious about your students, like how in their other work and their core work and the, and the things that they're, you know, uh, getting ready to, how have you seen an improvement with, with that kind of, um, uh, with yeah, the etudes I, moving on to other pieces? Yeah. I think, you know, once you, when you work on these Chopin etudes, there's always a part in the development section where Chopin himself goes into different keys with the same material. Like he'll do a sequence and he'll do it once and then he'll, you know, move it up a half step and do it again and move it up a whole step and do it again. And then you get to the return. 
immediately in that piece, you see that by transposing and by figuring out how to transpose, you've taken care of basically three entire sections without having to work. (laughs) Right. Once you see that, then you start noticing in other pieces, oh, that's a sequence. It's the same thing. Now it's up a fifth. Now it's down a fourth. Now it's up a fifth. Now it's down a fourth. Right. Now it's in the left hand. Now Now it's here. Now now it's in the right hand. So it it just naturally reveals itself in the music on on that kind of intellectual level. And I, I... so on a mental level, it helps with uh, recognizing patterns and structure. Uh, on a physical level, there's just this understanding of the keyboard that comes from having to play the same music, but with different keys, black and white keys alternating or randomly being different. It just makes you much more aware of what technique you have to use. And on an emotional level, I, I mentioned the sensitivity to to the, the color of the different tonalities. That's definitely one thing. But I think on an emotional level, even more than that, it's the idea that they tried something that they thought they couldn't ever do that was out of their right. league, and they accomplished it. And now they feel like, oh, here's this huge sonata I, i'll never be able to learn this but yes i can yeah there's a sense of i can approach something that i think is impossible and just step by step by step by step i can do it one key after another i can do all 12 keys uh, for this a2 step by step by step measure by measure i can learn this huge 30 minute sonata that seemed insurmountable before so I think that on, on that right. sense, the emotional training is perhaps the most uh, the most useful and productive because it's it's not linked to any particular piece or any even any piece at all. It's linked to am I able to accomplish yeah, right the, the process yeah, I, and the, and the, the goal? Process. Yeah. Can I do hard things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so important. That's, and 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 it, you know it is interesting. Like um, in any realm you get to a point where you're pushing against your boundaries um you know and and if you um and if you're a talented player if you're a talented person in whatever field you're in you know you you find it harder and harder when you hit those boundaries this is my experience that that when one finds that boundary the more talented they are the more difficult it is to do the thing that is necessary to overcome that boundary Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know uh, right. If 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 something comes difficult to somebody from the beginning, they they have no problem like moving on, moving forward. But if somebody's some of these talented kids, they they it, it comes so easy to them, and then something gets hard, and something will get hard, and then oh, it's yeah. almost like they that's break. when they want to quit. And it's like, yeah. no, no, this is when it gets fun. <laughs> right, this is where you're actually doing something that you're not used to doing. Right. Yeah, yeah it can be uh, tough to teach pre uh, pre collegiate students that who are very talented. You know, I've had a couple middle school and high school students who have so much talent and it's, it's pretty easy. Um, and then I just think, gosh, what, what's going to happen when they get to a real, real challenge. And sometimes they, they just don't go, they plateau. They don't go beyond something. They don't dig yeah. deeper because they don't feel they need to. Right. And that, that to me, it's almost like, uh, are you really going to go far in music? I, I think that's one of the hardest things and most important things is 
to continue pushing yourself. Right. Um, otherwise, you go into a field where okay, you've you've reached a very high level and you're successful, and that's that's fine. That's good enough. You don't need to go right. beyond that. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the Chopin transpositioning to uh, transposition exercise has helped me has 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 given the students an opportunity to see what it feels like to be at the limit of your ability mm. be that physical mental or emotional uh, because that's important to recognize when are you at what Mike was talking about that that frontier where it's hard to push through mm-hmm. what is it what does it feel like so that you can recognize when you're there and realize that the next step you take in that direction is going to actually create some new space for yourself. Yeah. You're not just in your old space, rearranging the furniture and feeling nice and comfortable. You're right. actually on the wall and digging through the wall. And that's yeah. not something that you can do in one go and just clear a whole room mm-hmm. space. You have to do that day by day, clearing a little bit, but it's important to know, you know, when to, when that process is starting Mm -hmm. and when do you let it go for today, knowing that you're going to come back tomorrow when you've recovered a little bit. Yeah. And you have to practice also doing that. And and I think as we get older, it it gets harder and harder. And, um, you know, you, you often see people, it's not all the time, but they're, they're so used to doing something for 40 or 50 years and, and it's worked. And so why change? Why try something new? And yeah, the mind is slowing. I've, I've noticed it even in myself and I, I, my wife and I both talk about that in dealing with, you know, very established people when we're in organizations or whatever teaching and, and uh, even students that we've had that have started much later in life, they're just not used to restarting and reassessing and, and the continual questioning that comes with music practice. And I said, yeah, there's a big challenge and, uh, but it's a beautiful challenge if, if you can look at it that way. Right. And it's, and I, I remind my students, it's a safe space to be challenged yes, in those exactly. areas because nobody's going to die if you don't play this piece well. Right. They might throw tomatoes, but... No. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a nice microcosm to experiment with body, mind, and heart. Mm-hmm. And once you develop that, then you take it into a larger context. And that, then, you know, then there are consequences. They're not just, to physically, mentally, or emotionally do certain things. Right. Just mm-hmm. just for context, when did you start doing this for yourself? Uh, I started doing like technical exercises when I was when I turned forty. Okay. And okay. And the Chopin etude exercise came very quickly after that, and that was uh, it, it was for me that emotional challenge of like, why am I doing this? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is this really something that I can accomplish realistically? And and the first few really took a lot of time to do and then it got into something where I feel like I sit down and, I, and I'll start with Opus 10 number one that's my go-to I'll just mm-hmm. play it in whatever random key my hand lands on and I'll play through it on that key wow and it's a great cool. and I do two hand things I do a little you know like little variants Godowski style mm-hmm. things not, not worked out like his but you know, I'll do parallel mm-hmm. octaves in left and right hand just to have the left hand working also and mm-hmm. You know, that's just a great, it's five minutes, great exercise, and I feel all warmed up, and I, I think that that has been something that has bolstered my, uh, bolstered my 
progress in, in piano playing in, in the last uh, 20 years. And I, and I think that's kind of one of the points I wanted to make is, is, you know, this is not something like a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people could say you were at the peak of your, you know, powers at the peak of your, you know, ability to, to, to play like at 40 years old, you, you've, you've gained all the technical prowess that you really need to get through, but you had this desire to, to improve and get even better and, and, and improve yourself even more. And that I think is a, um, an example, I'll say it that way. I think it's an example that, that, that we can look towards and go, wait, you know, if, if this guy who is this good, um, and is, is, is this well known and, and is doing the things that he's doing feels a need to, to improve and get better. Like, uh, I think, I just think that's a great example. And I appreciate you, sh- you know, sharing that and, and then, and then passing it on to your students. I think it's just a wonderful legacy you're leaving. Well, I, you know, I'm trying to be a model. I think that's one of the one of the things that I am trying to leverage. My inexperience as a teacher means perhaps more experience as a performer and some of the more more practical approaches to certain things. I, if I can model that and, and give them an approach to that, then then I feel very happy. But but to be fair to you also, and to give you <clears throat> because I think the. Uh, there's this belief that a lot of great performers out there um, are very talented. Obviously, you know they've been uh, great from a, from being kids, uh, and they might not know how to kind of relate or explain something because they've just done it their whole lives. Yeah. And I think the fact that you have a different you know field, and you're always analyzing and, and self analyzing, gives you a leg up just in how to translate that or, or convey that to somebody. And I think that's very important. And I, I wish. Look, we've we've talked about these kinds of things, but uh, in in looking for positions myself, it's it's very tough and uh, to to find the qualifications for that. Uh, and I Thank think you. you're a very good match between all of those. So I think Carnegie Mellon, uh, you know, I think they're they're very lucky. Well, I feel very lucky. That's been one of the one of the wonderful things that that happened over the pandemic. I'm daily grateful for that. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, talk. Let's move into this um, disc clavier project, and and it sounds so exciting. And, and I truly, I had no idea until we talked today the kind of technology that is that 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 disc clavier is capable of doing, and it's kind of exciting. So, talk to talk to us a little bit about your association and what the project is, and and how that has come to be. Yeah, well, I've I've had a long relationship with Yamaha. Uh, over 35 years of working with them as Yamaha artists. And coincidentally, the whole Disclavier technology started 35 years ago with just a very simple player piano setup where you play this note and it will play back that note. And it wasn't mm-hmm. through a paper roll with a hole in it with air blowing and stuff. It was you know digital, right. but it was very, very primitive. Uh, and over the years, they've put a lot of research into this. And uh, with each iteration, uh, you know, taking five, seven, eight years between iterations, they've added nuance, they've added uh, resolution, they've added complexity. And I've been, you know, I like to think that I've been part of that, either testing their machines or making suggestions or putting their putting their instruments on stage and seeing how they perform in, uh, you know, on the ground, like in a real setting. 
And uh, the last iteration, which is called Inspire, is just absolutely remarkable. It's, it's as I, I can't imagine it getting more fidelity to the original playing than it is now. And it will never be a perfect reproduction of the playing because the piano is an organic machine. It's made of wood. It's made of metal. Those things change with time and use and humidity and temperature. <laughs> so given those factors, I think that uh, the disc of today is about as good as you're going to find anywhere in reproducing what the pianist makes the instrument do. So basically, whatever notes I play in whatever timing and whatever uh, velocity they call the, the speed of the speed that the hammer goes, that the key goes down in, that's called the velocity. Whatever velocity, whatever coordination of different attacks and the pedal, all those things are reproduced and the piano gets played the same way that you just played it. So with that kind of technology, I've been able to present two piano concerts where I've pre-recorded uh, piano two and on stage we play that back with me playing piano one live, watching my video of the performance for head cues and, and uh, hand cues. It's, uh, I've done that for many years. Um, and this last recording project is kind of a smaller version of that with uh, Schubert forehand pieces, which all happened on the same piano, one piano. And I've recorded both parts and synchronized them. So the playback can be the two parts together synchronized. So it's like a piano duo that happens to be me and myself playing this piece back. But the owner of this recording can also choose to play back piano two and sit down on the right side of the, of the piano and play piano one along with it. Or vice versa, have piano one playing and and sit on the left side of the piano and play the piano two part and make music that way and experiment with timing, experiment with nuance. It, it, it's, it's a very interactive recording, not just something that you put on and, and just listen to. So I have a, that's amazing. I have a couple thoughts. One is this sort of music minus one, uh, which became mm -hmm. popular way back, you know, where you could practice concerto with, with that. Yeah. It's sort of taking that to the next level. Um, just a little, little background too. I, I have a bit of a connection. I worked at a Yamaha place and of course this is, I think the previous iteration of the disc clavier and, and we were there are two versions, you know, one that goes with the the C and S series, and one mm -hmm. that goes with the lower. And I was working with that one, um, and and they're incredible. And there are a couple other companies out there that are equally, I mean, I I think equally pretty incredible too. Um, they're they're not inexpensive, but they're yeah. uh, they're pretty amazing um, tools that you can use. And yeah. and I think it can be great for students too, as a side note, because you can record and and play back and listen and watch and see actually were you playing that note and was it at the were you holding this note as long as you think you were and right. um it gives you more feedback than maybe just your ears in the in the time um, i do have a couple uh logistical questions with playing back uh with yourself playing already mm -hmm. uh, for example with the schubert so the f minor fantasy i've performed a lot with my wife and mm -hmm. um and that's I know. 
yeah. yeah the, the coordination is hard enough when you've got uh, when you've got two people. Um, it's it would seem, especially with that that march, the dotted rhythm, very difficult to time that if you're kind of doing a listen or a playback with uh, with yourself on a recording. I wonder if you could talk to to that aspect. The other aspect is um, it's very uncomfortable, I think, to play forehand music, and even more uncomfortable uncomfortable to play sixhand music. But um, did you find it was easier to play when you're just sitting at the piano on your own? Uh, that that second or you know secondo or primo part with the other part recorded, or was was you know maybe it wasn't, or it was about the same. I kind of I had to figure out a protocol to make it work for timing reasons, but also to not make it metronomic. Of course, if mm-hmm. I put on a metronome, that metronome sound would not be recorded onto the discovery recording. But it would also be just this uh, this irrevocable, uh, unmovable beat, and mm-hmm. remove any sense of of uh, nuance uh, timing. So I didn't want to do that. So mm-hmm. what I what I came to was kind of an iterative approach where I played one part while imagining the other part, mm-hmm. and then I would play back the other part while playing the original part re-recording that mm-hmm. okay and then i would play that part back and re-record the other part so i would play piano one Go first and, and play piano yeah. two to it play piano two back and record number one to it and then play one back and record number two so back and forth like two or three times like that mm-hmm. seemed to first of all give me a very good uh memory of what I was doing nuance-wise, mm-hmm. in particular with timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also uh, the final step is to go into the MIDI data and to edit some stuff. Mm, okay. And it was very interesting because you can line notes up and make them appear, you know, attack at exactly the same time when you visually can put them in a straight line. At the same time, you, sometimes you can't do that. If you put it in a straight line, sometimes with the discovery, the way the technology is notated, they will come, the attacks will be, uh, uh, what's the word, they'll be off. Mm-hmm. Even though visually they're on, just because of the mechanics of the instrument. So there's some knowledge of how the discovery works that has to come into play. And in so the I, end, with the editing, it makes it possible to just hear it back. And if it's not quite right, you go in and tweak a little bit. If it's not quite right, you tweak a little bit until you get it right. Uh-huh. So that was definitely a, a tool that, that was necessary for the final step. I wonder, you know, we've had um, Brett Leonard on a number of times, who's a recording engineer, teaches up in the, <clears throat> in the Midwest. And um, he was my recording engineer for two albums. And I remember... The amount of time for one edit in particular where we just could not find um, an intro and an outro that matched the uh, ambient sound, you know, or the atmosphere that was being created was extremely difficult for, you know, maybe a five second clip Um, and just kind of the fade in fade out was very difficult. What you're explaining, it's it seems like another type of technique. Maybe some pros, some cons to splicing or editing with uh, disc library technology. Is yeah, that, I, I think actually this is one of the places where the disc has sort of revolutionized piano playing, which is the solo piano recording. And I've made my last 
a few recordings uh, using this technique where I don't do any audio splicing. Mm. I only do MIDI editing and then do a quote-unquote print of that MIDI track, which is the playback on a disc of ear with microphones capturing the audio of that playback. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's revolutionary because it saves a lot of time. It also encourages musical playing versus this kind of like have to be clean, have to be have to match this tempo, have to match this ambiance in order for the splice to happen. Right. Yeah, I found, because I've done quite a bit of audio recording, I found that when you get into those situations where you know exactly what note is wrong and you get to that pass and you have to play it right and you have to play it at this tempo and that that dynamic level, it's very constricting. Mm -hmm. It makes everything else like (laughs) non-musical. Yeah. Wow. Whereas if I know that I can just go into the MIDI and change that wrong note to the right note, but it will have the same nuance, it will have the same attack, it will have the same timing as if I played the right note, but but I don't have to do it, and it will do it on the playback, I'm actually more motivated to take musical risks, timing risks, dynamic risks, tempo risks, uh, because I know that if I get pretty much everything right, but a couple of wrong notes, I can go and ship those notes, the the signal for those notes to the right ones and play back, and it will be the right playing when it plays back. I wonder if there's a different philosophical discussion to be had, because in the past, just the idea of being able to splice. So if we take very early recordings like the piano rolls, mm. um, it, it was also relatively simple. You know, if you have the wrong note in some place, you just cover over with paper, you punch a hole in a, in a new place. Right. Um, and there you've got it. It's, it's at the same time. Everything is there. It's al- almost like the the manual version of what's happening today. But then right. with auto recording, just the concept of, oh, you can miss it and then and fix it. And this this created the whole atmosphere of when you hear recordings like, oh, well, they can't really play. And and there are plenty of, of recording artists out there who really can't and, and have wonderful recording engineers who have yeah. uh, created great CDs for them. Um and so now we're almost getting to a, a happy medium or a, the best of both worlds where you can go in and manually change those little things, but still capture, capture that essence. Um, I don't know. I'm, to me, it's like a new frontier. So it comes with new philosophical yeah. questions. Yeah, totally. And my, my attitude towards recording has always been more of the Glenn Gould school where mm-hmm. if technology allows it, then we should be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and it's more I, about envisioning the final product, how it's mm-hmm. structured, how it plays out, and how you get there is is less material than the final result itself. Yeah, it seems to me like you can make a distinction between a, a, a studio recording or recording that that is like supposed to be this pristine. Um, vision of what you imagine versus a, a concert recording or a live recording. I think yeah. that, that, that we can do that and go, okay, yeah, this guy can play cause we can hear his, his, his recordings, but yeah. this is, this is what he actually envisions. Yeah. I mean, if we take, if we take pop music as a model, I mean, there is some incredibly complex rock and pop songs. They were not recorded or played that way. 
they were completely constructed from little clips and snippets and sound effects and, and layered and layered and layered and going through many hands until it reached the final version that we hear on the radio. Then the artist who is, you know, is cited as being this, the lead singer on that particular song, they have to actually learn how to sing that version. Right. And they can do it in concert. You know, so in the end, they never recorded it that way, but their live version is pretty close to that way because that's what they learned. Oh, Eddie Van Halen was famous for for uh, when he would record his guitar solos on his tunes. He would do like you know twenty different versions of a solo, and then they would literally just pick this part, this three seconds, this three seconds, this five seconds. They'd splice it together, and then he'd have to relearn exactly what you're talking about. He had to relearn how to play exactly. his solo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I so and you know filmmakers they don't shoot the film from the first scene to the last scene in order. And they're splicing and 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 snipping and and editing. So you know, I I really feel that music, you know, certainly there's an, an a feeling of like wonder and astonishment when you hear someone play something live from beginning to end, and it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. With flaws or no flaws, whatever it is, it's remarkable when you know that. But it's also it's only one way of hearing a recording and there are so many other ways of hearing other recordings and i i've always felt that if it's possible to get what you want through some some editing there's nothing wrong with that at all and it actually will make me try to practice and try to play that you know that way yeah that's oh, refreshing yeah, it's true with the pop music analogy i think of you know, so so much of it, at least in today's world, and now I sound like an old fogey. The pop music <laughs> today sounds so produced or overproduced, and it's almost not even about the artists. Certainly in K-pop, you know, they yeah. they just put artists together. They're not even a formed yeah. band that that tours and then practices and and then records. Right. They're just like, oh, we need this, we need that, and we'll we'll just do it all in the studio. Um, right. Then what happens sometimes in concerts is these bands or artists go and they just can't live up to what they have on the recording. Yeah. Um, and then you get the famous lip syncing, you know, fiasco. Right, so. right, right. right. So, yeah. So yeah. maybe we can use a disco beer to finger sync. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, <we're speaking> <laughs> <of> <laughs> go up and do some gyrations so seated in front of the disco beer. <laughs> well, and, and as somebody that, that, perf- that um, performs in a lot of different settings and, and with different bands and, and things like that, one of the exciting uh, technologies that, that I've seen that is starting to, to emerge um, is MIDI 2.0. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an exciting technology because now instead of just having, you know, 128 um, velocity, you know, segments, for example, you can have millions, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah. it's really remarkable. Um, I'm curious about, you know, the, like where, you know, if there is going to be an evolution in the disc clavier technology, if, the, if they'll be utilizing that that MIDI 2.0 technology a lot more. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the Inspire is what they call a high-resolution signal. And strangely enough, in order to edit the stuff, I have to go back to a, a lower resolution in order to hand, for the machine to handle the data. Hmm. Uh, but eventually, they'll figure out a way to edit high-resolution disclosure data. But the, hmm. the funny thing is, you know, I, I push them to go from... 64 nuances in the pedal position to today's 256. When it yeah. was 64, I was able to find those things in between. 
Mm -hmm. and it wasn't reproducing that. You could tell that in the performance. With 256, I would say that it's within the range of this kind of organic wood and metal kind of moving around within that era. So right. there's no sense in going beyond that. And the keys, there's 1,024 gradations of it going down and 1,024 gradations of velocity going up. Mm. And that is also something that I noticed has made a difference, but I don't see it making any more difference during the high mm. resolution. Mm -hmm. So I think because we're dealing with real-life stuff and not pure digital, I think that it's not going to be that um, noticeable. I may be wrong, and I'm certainly you know, eager to see that happening, but uh, mm -hmm. I think that uh, the Discovery thing... No, is there, is, there is a, a you know, a, 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 you do see that happen, you know, and you see that in audio recording, you know, you don't really, people record at like 192K or whatever, but our ears can't hear that high, and it's, right. it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, but there's reasons to do it, I guess. Right. That That's an interesting take. That that's cool. Mm -hmm. um, wow. I, I'm wondering if, if we have time, I'd love to chat a little bit about your, uh, your, um, the, the, the programs that, the, that you have done in the past. I don't know if you're going to do more, but the, but the, uh, um, oh, the, the composer, uh, Smackdown. Smackdown. <laughs> the classical Smackdowns. Yeah. Those are so fun. They are a lot of fun. I'm, I'm preparing right now as we speak. I'm preparing for a, a series of them up in uh, uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, Dartmouth College. Uh, I'm going to be doing my Time Travelers one, which is the music of Bach versus the music of Philip Glass. Oh, and cool. then uh, also a little bit of uh, Heart and Soul, which is music of Prokofiev versus Debussy. And both of those are have been... Uh, I've done those many times and the results are extremely close. Like it's almost 50, 50 down the middle in mm. terms of who wins overall. <laughs> it's a, it's a very interesting way of, of splitting kind of the musical universe. And uh, it seems to come right down the middle. And the other program that I do in this SmackDown series, which I debuted, I think uh, probably like right when we were doing the other episode, uh, or right after that uh, is called Young Geniuses, and that's the music of Felix Mendelssohn versus Frederick Chopin that they wrote before the age of twenty. Oh wow! Mm. And it seems like a dueling. It's like a dueling pianos meets WWF, WWE. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's been it started off as kind of a fun idea. I've since come to see uh, a lot of very um, kind of deep effect that it's having on audiences that come to hear this. Okay. Uh, the reaction of audiences has been actually quite remarkable because um, a lot of people who come to classical music concerts, they, they feel like they need to know all about the composers or they can't really you know, relax and enjoy the program. Mm. But this program and this whole series is designed for anybody to just experience two musical things and say, I like this one better than that one. Right. And it's, it's released a lot of, I think, pent up tension in my audience. And I, I get all sorts of thanks and all sorts of very interesting comments from, from audiences on their ballots 
uh, when I tally the results of, of these uh, SmackDown concerts. Well, and yeah. and like you with your your time travelers one, when you have, if I'm not mistaken, you're doing Bach and Glass, okay. Bach versus Glass, and that's mm-hmm. you know you you put those. Not because no I mean, oh, I mean, they're so different in so many ways. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's it, you can kind of tell a story of Western music, you know, yeah, with that. that, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And I and I found some very interesting and uh, places where they overlap that mm-hmm. Venn diagram intersection space. Uh, they're both very contrapuntal, very multi layered thinking. In different ways, but definitely multi-layered. Uh, they both have a, kind of a, an effect on our sense of time, and I I tell the audience to give them kind of a, a primer in in what to to think about uh, that famous uh, clip of an apple being shot by a bullet mm-hmm. in slow motion where the bullet enters the apple and then the in, insides of the apple start exploding almost, you know, like a, like a fountain and the bullet goes through and it's, it's almost like a ballet. And then the other image is a time-lapse of Grand Central during rush hour with people mm-hmm. going up and down the escalators and running around the, the foyer. Uh, and you start seeing patterns of groups of people shifting left and right, moving up mm-hmm. and down. Both of those are time-shifting phenomenon visually, and I have a, I have a sense that Bach and Glass both do that kind of time-shifting in, in some very interesting ways. Not just one does one kind and the other does the other kind, but they both play with this idea of time and repetition and, and, and rhythm and perception. So I found that this particular contest is a very meditative moment, even though the musics are are very different, but uh, in, in a very deep way, they're very spiritual and they're, and they're very kind of affecting uh, in a similar way. Are you presenting those in Arizona anytime soon? I would love to, if you if you know who I should contact to, to get sure. uh, you know, a piano recital going out, I would love to do those. That seems fun. Yeah, this is some be- something else. Boy, I'd I'd love to have my festival in Albuquerque. I'd love to present you, but uh, it's it's maybe not a big enough festival, but it's getting there. So maybe maybe you'd be interested in presenting okay. uh, as a feature concert. Totally, totally. Let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah, th- these yeah. sound awesome. I mean, I I almost want to get into the the nitty gritty of them, but I I also want to be surprised if I were to hear one of these, because part of me, you know, we have, we play concerts for such different types of audiences. And I, I feel nowadays we have to really relate to non-musicians more and more. Yeah. And one of those ways is of, of course to talk. And I remember maybe 15 or 20 years ago, a colleague of mine, um, had, I don't know, it was like an article written about uh, how, Oh, this person talks during his performance. What a revelation. And I, I thought, Gosh, I've been doing that for years, and and isn't that something that we're we're not trained to do? But then after school, we realize we have to because we're playing for you know our grandparents or at a retirement right. home, and they have no clue. I mean, they don't care about the uh, you know five one cadence at the end of a Beethoven sonata. So right. we have to make it relatable. And so what, what your program is doing when I first hear it, 
and then I think, okay, he's he's feeling some niche. Maybe it's a a little kitschy. I'm being brutally honest. Sorry, but no, totally. then, then I realize there's actually a lot of um, fodder in there and a lot of connection that can be made. And if if it's presented in the right way, and, and I know you're taking it very seriously, that uh, there's probably a lot of interconnectivity there that um, mm. that's that's illuminating and, and really brings people in and, and takes them to a new level. So I I almost want to experience that from a novice's standpoint. Because like yeah, you well, said- I think what yeah. happens is that everybody does get put into a novice mm-hmm. mindset when they hear this because of this very simple and stupid act of voting. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like what? Absolutely no consequence on anything at all. And yet, when you're tasked to do that, all of a sudden you start hearing things differently. Yeah. You start asking different questions and you start valuing certain aspects more than, than these aspects. And like, okay, I'm going to score this, I'm going to score that, and see how it comes out. You know, you start asking and answering questions in a different way. Yeah. And I think you're using the modern age. I mean, I'm always trying to think, how do we get people involved more and, and not just the older generation because they're already involved in some yeah. ways or they don't care about it or they've written it off and, and they're not going to be around forever, at yeah. least for my whole career. But young audiences, they don't appreciate it the same way. So how do I integrate something like this? And and even at our festival in, um, here in Arizona, we think about how do we do that and what a great way to do it um, with without selling out. That's what I like is these projects have – the um, the the foundation is that there's great stuff in here. It, all the yeah. stuff is great, and you're just enhancing it with the technology of today. You know, one of the great moments in any SmackDown concert is at the very end when the lights come up, and everybody is still in their seats. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And they, right. they're debating so. with each other and comparing notes and discussing, and only slowly getting up from their seats and heading out to the lobby. Wow. Because they're involved in the in listening and and digesting the program, and that's for a family, you know, like kids talking to their grandparents if they happen yeah. to come to the same concert, and they're comparing notes and they're talking about their experiences and disagreeing with each other and reinforcing mm-hmm. each other. And I like to watch from backstage. I like to watch that because it's really so different than the concert where the lights come up and half the people are out there out of their seats trying to rush to the parking lot to get out for yeah exactly Uh, it's a beautiful idea that is beautiful and and you know and you we talked you talked about this before about we have this 400 year old rich history of of music literature that Mm -hmm. that that you know if any way that you can introduce that to them and um and you know just i just it's just beautiful and and yeah amen that if you come yeah to the southwest we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to figure out how to get you out here man definitely yeah. let's 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 bring this train yeah let's do it absolutely okay. absolutely well there's a lot more we can discuss but but i just appreciate your time so much frederick and if people want to follow what you're doing if people want to um you know, see where they can see you next and all that. Is is your website the best place to go? Website's the best place, frederickchu.com. Uh, I try to keep my schedule up to date and all my projects are there. And uh, there's always stuff on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel where I post things. There's a, a Patreon for some more insider kind of stuff, uh, tracks from my 
from my my personal vault of recordings, things that I try out, uh, and uh, access to behind the scenes kind of stuff on the Patreon. So there's all sorts oh. of things. Wonderful. Well, we'll definitely put those links in and get you know. I'd love people to support you know your great work. So thanks again for joining us. We'll have you on again. I, I hope. Yeah, I, hope I love so. these discussions. You're you're like uh, such a model out there. So thanks yeah, for what thank you're you doing. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. It's, it's great to talk with you guys. Mike is gone. You are listening to End of Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization. Out.